Netaporte presents. This is Pieces of Me, My Life in Seven Garments by Porter. I'm editor in chief Sarah Bailey. Pieces of Me is about celebrating women and the power of fashion. In this series, we hear incredible women tell the stories of their lives through seven key pieces of clothing they wore at defining moments. Sinead Burke is an activist for inclusion who believes design should include everybody. At three foot five inches tall, she is a little person, as is her father. The eldest of five siblings, all of whom are of average height, she was raised and continues to live in Ireland. Sinead is a lifelong fashion obsessive. She would ask her parents to buy her the September issue of British and American Vogue for her birthday. But she trained and initially worked as a school teacher. Indeed, it was a teacher training assignment to start a blog, which gave her the platform to write about her passion for fashion and the freedom to challenge the industry from her perspective. Sinead found the internet the perfect place for her to explore and learn more about fashion, while also finding the confidence to challenge the norms of the industry. Sinead's response to people's curiosity about the way she looks and her life as a little person is to appeal to us all for a new understanding and empathy. As she puts it, nobody gets to choose what they look like, but we each choose how we behave. I'm Sinead Burke, and these are the pieces of me. I'm the eldest of five children, and there is four girls and one boy, but the first three of us, me, Natasha and Neve, were quite close in age. And we did and still do everything together. They are the first people I text in the morning and the last people I text at night. And I think our relationship now was probably embodied more than anything in our wardrobes when we were children. And looking at the photographs when we were teenagers, we kind of almost lambasted our poor mother by giving out to her and questioning why she dressed us the same. And she had to admit that it was never her choice (laughs) to dress us the same, that she would pick a beautiful outfit for me. And my sisters would complain almost until they were wearing the exact same thing, which means our entire childhood is denoted by the same outfit in a trilogy. And I think the one for me that I remember most is an Adidas tracksuit. It was a bright yellow top with two navy stripes down each arm, navy tracksuit bottoms and yellow stripes. And... I'm not sure why I loved it so much, but I think it was because it was one of the few items that felt sophisticated or mature. It was something that my sister, who was four years younger than me, could wear and still have the same access to it and still have the same ability for it to be functional and for it to be about form. And looking back on those childhood photographs of me, Natasha and Neve in the same Adidas tracksuit was just, yeah, I can't help but smile. As the eldest, I thought it was my responsibility to show my sisters the way through fashion and help them explore who they could be and what their identity was through clothes. And what I very quickly realised was that they didn't really care. Not in a sense that, yes, they had to wear clothes every day, but it was more about the function of it, what they needed to be warm, what they needed in less warm weather. And if I had to distill their rationale for that, it's probably because it came easier to them. 
And that's probably the reason why I loved fashion so much was because it had this extraordinary ability to demonstrate to the world who I was. I buy shoes in the children's department. And whilst that can be helpful in terms of there being no vat on children's shoes, it can also be really challenging. Because in my previous career as a teacher, or even now, shoes are such a symbol of maturation. And the only shoes that I could buy had sequins, or were bright pink, or were runners that lit up. And all of those shoes are probably part of my wardrobe in some way. But they didn't make me feel like an adult. They never allowed me to feel like a woman. My brother had just come home with a new pair of runners. They were Stan Smiths. And I remember saying to him, God, I really like them. I wish they were in my size. And he looked at me like I was ridiculous. He was like, they are. And I said, no, no, they'll have Velcro or they just, it won't be the same. And he said, no, they're exactly the same. I think I bought them maybe about two hours later. They have a green tag on the back. They have Stan Smith, the tennis player, his face on the tongue, also outlined in green. They have laces and almost invisible stripes on each side. They get dirty very quickly. They are one of the few shoes that mirror the design of the adult collection. And it allowed me to feel like an adult because they were the same ones as my friends could buy. And they are still a part of my wardrobe. And yeah, I'm never without a pair. It was never articulated to me as a child that that I was different or that I was an other in some form because I had my dad as this very physical representation of what might be possible. But my dad being male and me being female, when I was growing up, there was all sorts of questions in my household. So my parents, in their infinite bravery, said, we can't be the only family who needs answers to questions. And in 1997, they founded Little People of Ireland and still organize and run it on a voluntary basis over 20 years later. And every year through an annual conference, bring together hundreds of people with a real emphasis on the whole family that whilst it's me and my dad who have dwarfism, my siblings and my mom live with our condition in ways that I don't even think of. And my parents, by creating this association, didn't just cultivate a community and a safe space for people like me, but for our families and friends too. And in terms of their legacy, how extraordinary to have built something, built a world, where people have the freedom just to be themselves. As Sinead's fashion profile has increased, she always takes the opportunity to push the conversation. At the Green Carpet Fashion Awards, I was awarded the Innovators Award for work in fashion and design and inclusivity. At the dinner afterwards, I was sat next to the extraordinary Paul Andrews, the creative director of Ferragamo. From my archival reading of the fashion industry, I knew about Ferragamo's history of being in Hollywood, creating lasts and custom shoes for the icons of that era. And in our conversation, I kind of flippantly said to Paul, 
you should do custom shoes for people like me. And I laughed it off in the attempt that if he thought it was a joke, we'd never mention it again and I'd be fine. But he responded and he said, yeah, we should. So I went to Florence. I had my feet molded and measured. And for the first time in my life, have heels. But for me, in terms of the focus of my work, the solution is never just about me. I'm just a case study to prove that it's possible and that there's a financial and creative business model that could and will be a success. So late last year, Fergamo came to Little People of Ireland. They came to our annual conference and they measured the feet of little people. And who knows what might happen next. Sinead's activism has brought her to the attention of some extraordinary leaders on the world stage. And some invitations have required a very particular dress code. In 2016, I'd been doing some very initial advocacy work around fashion and disability and inclusion. And this email popped into my inbox, inviting me to the White House. Because the White House were doing an event about designing for all. And I didn't respond because I thought the email was spam. I mean, what was I, an Irish gal who lives in a town of 40,000 people, doing being invited to the White House during the Obama era to talk about fashion? And a couple of days later, I got another email and it said, Dear Sinead, President Obama would really like to know if you'd like to confirm your attendance at the White House in Washington, D.C. And I thought, yeah, I should probably do that. But because I had confirmed so late and things were coming together so quickly, I had nothing to wear. What does one wear to the White House? So I had a very small online presence and I sent a tweet in the middle of this panic. And the tweet just said, Speaking at an international event next week. Have nothing to wear. Does anyone have any ideas? What I was hoping for was that somebody online would point to something that they had seen that wouldn't require too much alteration. Maybe a top that already had a short sleeve or a skirt that was mini that I could make midi. But about 20 minutes later, I got a private message from the extraordinary Moy Doherty who is one of the co-founders and originators of the idea of Riverdance, the Eurovision phenomenon. She said, I'm really sorry to hear that you're finding it difficult to get something to wear. Tell you what, why don't you make an appointment with the costume department in Riverdance? They'll do whatever you want. It's on me. I was like, oh, oh okay. So I did. So I went to Riverdance headquarters. I met Joan Bergen and the costume team there, and they made the most beautiful blue satin skirt that was high-waisted and billowed to the ground. And I had this chemise, cream chemise shirt on top that kind of gaped at the shoulder and the sleeve and went to Washington, D.C. wearing that outfit. And the most amazing moment of meeting some of the people I admired most for the first time and them asking, who are you wearing? For me, what was so extraordinary about the White House was that the Obama term was coming to an end. 
and at the end of any moment like that, I was so taken aback by their desire to prioritize something, such as disability and design, and to give it not only a platform, but this global amplification and reach and to say that this matters. For me, more than anything, it ignited the notion that it was important to continue to do this. It was important to ask the questions. It was important to facilitate new learning and to challenge the industry and to see what might be possible. But at that time, I still didn't know if anything would come of it. It was just a day and a half in Washington and leaving with Obama M&Ms. Sinead has been pivotal to opening up the conversation around inclusion in the fashion industry, never shying away from putting herself on the front line. I was speaking at a conference in Ireland and I met this amazing disability advocate called Elizabeth Jackson. And she said that she was hosting this event in New York and I should come and I should be in the room. So I did. And about 20 minutes before the event, she kind of said to me, you should give a speech. And I have no memory at all of what I said during those six minutes. But I came back to Ireland and I had an email from a woman called Chi who said, hey, Sinead, it was really great to meet you in New York. I really enjoyed your speech. Quick question. Have you ever considered giving a TED talk? Because I work at TED and we're doing this big event on the 8th of March, 2017. It's all about design and I think you should be on that stage. So I said, sure. And I drafted a talk that I genuinely believed was the best thing that TED had ever seen. I really thought that they were going to come back with, wow, amazing. Um, but instead the feedback was, wow, the life really goes out of it when you write it down. And that was incredibly humbling. And I thought, maybe I'll give it a go again. And I did. And over the next four months, we worked on it meticulously, curated every word. And I was so nervous, I almost didn't think I would be able to do it. But I did. And it was watched. And it seemed to resonate with people. And um, why design should include everyone became not just the title of a TED Talk, but a mantra. And one of the people who watched that TED Talk was the CEO of the business of fashion, Imran Ahmed. And he emailed me and said, hey, I saw your TED Talk. At Business of Fashion, we do this conference called Voices, where we get people who are often outside of the fashion system into the room with some of the people who have the most power. And we challenge them. Have you any interest in fashion? And I genuinely believe he was <laughs> disappointed and regretted asking that question because on the phone, I spoke at him for several minutes in a monologue about my specific interest in fashion. And then it was announced that I was speaking at Voices. And randomly, an extraordinary woman who I didn't know at the time called Alice Delahunt, who was heading up digital marketing at Burberry, emailed me. And she said, I saw your TED talk. We should dress you for speaking at Voices. You should wear Burberry. What do you think? And I responded back to her and said, thanks so much, Alice. I really appreciate you thinking of me. And gosh, it's so lovely to hear from you. But here's the thing. You've never really dressed anyone like me before. And 
I don't know if we've thought all of this through. I don't know if it's going to be possible. So, so thanks, but, but like, no, thanks, thanks. And she came back and she said, no, we're going to make this work. I mean, we do custom clothes and alterations for celebrities and VIPs. It's definitely workable. It's the same skills. Um, I went to Burberry and I had my first fitting. And the trench coat is one of those iconic pieces of fashion that almost doesn't even come under the definition of style. It's probably a symbol. And when we first tried it on, we went with the children's ones because we thought with the height that I stand at, maybe there would be less alterations and that would be great. And I tried it on. And whilst it fit in the sleeves and in the length, it didn't close because I'm not a child. I have a bust. So then we put the women's one on and I was swamped in material. But bit by bit, we began to subtract the hemline and customize it and alter it until it fit. And I went on stage at Voices, dressed head to toe in Burberry. Probably my first ever physical touch point to luxury fashion. And standing in front of some of the most influential people in the industry, I almost considered it as armour, as a way to give me courage and confidence to ask those questions. One of those who saw Sinead talk in her custom Burberry trench was Georgina Ripley, curator at the National Museum of Scotland. She told me about an exhibition that they were doing called Body Beautiful, which was focusing on diversity in fashion. They were the first museum to dedicate an exhibition on this topic. And I just thought it was so incredible. And she asked if I had anything that they could borrow and put on display. And I suggested the trench coat and this amazing green dress from Christopher Kane. I have loved and admired Christopher Kane as a person and as a designer for as long as I can remember. We first met in 2018 at the preview of the Met Gala exhibition. And I was in the Met looking at all of the religious iconography and I heard my name being called and I turned around and it was Chris calling me and I thought, this is the best moment of my entire life. How does Christopher Kane know who I am? And we had a conversation and I was going to the Serpentine Gallery summer party and I kind of told him that I was going and I didn't really know what I was going to wear and he was like, just come to the studio, I'll make you something. He did, and it was mint green. There's a skin and flesh-coloured slip underneath. And the gown itself is entirely transparent, with beautiful floral embellishment. And giving that to the National Museums of Scotland, particularly because Christopher Kane is a Scottish designer, felt right. So when handing over the pieces, we began this conversation about how they were going to be displayed. And the museum said, you know, we're not sure yet. Maybe we'll hang them from a ceiling. I said, great, how is everything else being displayed? And they said, well, there are mannequins. And I said, okay. How do we get a mannequin made? And one must be really careful when they ask that question because if you're not actually willing 
to follow up on what the answer is going to be, you should be careful. Because that question led to me going to Proportion in London, one of the biggest mannequin manufacturers in the world, and going to get my body cast, the entirety of my body. And that experience alone was intimidating. You feel so vulnerable. But the end product is mesmerizing because I have never seen my body physically represented in a 3D format outside of looking at my friends. I went for three different casting sessions. Initially, the ambition and the idea was that I would get my legs cast and then they would take that casting and find a way to mold it with the torso of an average height mannequin. Because with my dwarfism, the only thing that's shorter is my arms and legs, because I have a chondroplasia, the most common form of dwarfism. My torso and my head and many of my organs are average height. So we quickly learned that it wouldn't be possible to blend my hips and legs to an average height torso. So my torso was cast, as were my arms. And I was cast by two lovely kind men who were so encouraging throughout the whole process but it was difficult the legs alone took four hours and you're standing in one place and can't move after the layers of plaster and plastic and after a bit of time you start to get pins and needles and they start to go dead and then the molds crack off and it's such a huge relief. And for me, what's extraordinary about that exhibition and that mannequin being made is that now it's available for retail. And now when we look at the, the chain and the process by which things get made, it answers one of those questions because when we speak to designers and we ask them to make clothes for different types of bodies, they will often say that they can't because retailers won't buy them. When you talk to retailers, retailers say that they can't buy them because they've no way to display them. When you talk to mannequin manufacturers, they say about it being a huge investment to create something that they don't even know if it's going to be appreciated by the market. So now the mannequin's made. It's ready. So what are the answers to those questions now? I have been to the World Economic Forum to speak at Davos twice in my life, which at 29 and as a disabled woman is an absurd and very privileged thing to be able to say. The first time that I went was terrifying. The second time, I'm not sure you ever get a little bit more comfortable at Davos, but I tried to. But in the September of the previous year, at the Green Carpet Fashion Awards, I had met Marco Pizzari from Gucci. I saw him again at the British Fashion Awards that December. And there we had a conversation about me going to Davos. And what was I wearing? And that led to me wearing a custom Gucci, light blue, silk dress that had plissé pleats around the whole circumference of the dress with a lace overlay 
and a pink slip underneath. The phrase that I hear most in any room that I'm in, but particularly in places like Davos, is we haven't thought about this before. And often after that utterance, there's an embarrassment and a worry. How could they have missed this? But we have built a world and a society designed only for the people who get to be in the room where powerful decisions are made. And they design this world based on their needs. So how could they have ever considered things like this when they have no empathy or understanding of what it's like to live in my body and what we must do immediately is change the perspectives. It's going to be challenging. But in places like Davos, it's my job, along with many others, to provoke some new ideas about how those in power can make space, create opportunities, and deliberately find diverse voices to amplify them and embed the changes that they suggest. So when you are not only three foot five inches tall, but wearing a blue silk custom Gucci dress at an economic conference, well, <laughs> you stand out and it amplifies your message. And more than anything, proves the point that the luxury fashion industry can accommodate for inclusion. Sinead isn't always wearing Christopher Kane and Gucci. Her final piece is a fashion staple. There is an item in my wardrobe that has been a part of me for every day. I think probably for the past two years. I acquired it on a photo shoot. It was actually the piece I loved most on the shoot. And I was so thrilled about wearing it. But they sent it to me. And it is a black leather jacket by Redone, which focuses on using sustainable practices and building leather jackets out of old scraps of leather. And it's a biker jacket, but its hemline is short. So it sits perfectly on my hip without alterations. The sleeves have been altered. A lovely woman who has been my seamstress since I was four years old did it. There are epaulettes on the shoulders. There are silver that have almost turned brass due to the amount of wear that I've given it. Kind of buttons and studs and the zip. And it's almost quite brutish. But it's the perfect shield in cold weather. Or if I have to travel for work. It's great even in warmer weather. It kind of keeps cool. But I have worn it so often that the lining of the jacket has had to be replaced, I think, three times now. It's the definition of function and form, whilst also trying to appeal to my broader moral compass as a person. But I never zip it up. It's always open. I wear it with everything. So if you're ever looking for me, the question is, is she wearing a leather redone jacket? Whether sitting front row at Fashion Week 
or on the stage at Davos, Sinead's world is extraordinarily glamorous. But she says what she's doing is what she learned as a schoolteacher. It's the same as being in a classroom. And I think what changes hearts and minds is human story. If I've learned anything in my role as an advocate, is that we are all challenged by something. I think I'm very fortunate that most of my challenges are immediately obvious. That when you meet me, you can probably figure out that I'm going to need a footstool to get on the chair or I won't be able to reach the light switch. But walking into a space like Davos, most people there fit society's biased and antiquated definition of normal. But that's just not true. Because we all at times feel alone or feel underqualified or are hurt by something or feel excluded or feel less. And by using my personal narrative and some of my experience as a case study to explore these themes, you find ways to connect people and to give them the courage and the ambition to then do something to make a difference. Sinead is a truly incredible force and certainly one of the most refreshing people I've ever met in the world of fashion. When I met her, she had this absolutely relentless energy and determination to bring about change. And she delivers her message with pin-sharp clarity, boundless charm, and really challenges you to think more creatively about what fashion and design can be and who it should include. And I must say, her dress sense is impeccable, whether she is rocking sheer Christopher Kane green lace or a cool, redone biker jacket, she looks the business. Sinead Burke, thank you for sharing your pieces of me. Head to netaporte slash porterpodcasts slash pieces of me to see pictures of the pieces Sinead discussed today and to listen to previous episodes. And follow us at Porter Magazine on Instagram for updates. And to listen, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Pieces of Me was brought to you by Porter and Chalk and Blade, presented by Sarah Bailey and produced by Laura Hyde. The executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Thank you.